Hello and welcome to another episode of JG Ministries Bible Study, where we study God's Word. I'm Jeffrey, ordained minister and chaplain JG Ministries, and I'm glad you joined us. We are studying the ninth chapter of the book of Luke, and we're just about done with this ninth chapter. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to the ninth chapter of Luke, and we'll begin with verse 51. Let's get into it. Now, last time we saw Jesus heal a boy with an evil spirit, and Jesus shares the true greatness of the kingdom of God. Now to continue, we will see the further teachings and travels of Jesus towards Jerusalem and the new direction of Jesus's ministry. So turn with me to verse 51 and let's go ahead and read some scripture. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and set messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. <clears throat> now we see increasing opposition to the Son of Man. And this extensive section has no counterpart in Matthew or Mark, though much of its material is found in other contexts in those Gospels. Luke chapter 9 verse 51 implies that Jesus was setting out on a journey that one would expect to be described in the succeeding chapters, yet these chapters say comparatively little about Jesus's traveling from one place to another, though we do occasionally find clues showing that Jesus is moving towards Jerusalem. And Luke notes Jesus' words, we are going up to Jerusalem. He arrives near Jerusalem in chapter 19, verses 28 to 29. It is clear from all this that Jesus is now heading towards Jerusalem and not Galilee. However, he did not make one continuous journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. Jesus' ministry has entered a new phase and has taken on some new characteristics. He follows routes that bring him away from Galilee and nearer to Jerusalem than his former itineraries did. During this period, Jesus is no longer committed to the locale of his former ministry, but is looking towards Jerusalem and the cross. And much of his teaching at this time is directed to the disciples. Warnings to the rich and complacent are prominent, as well as words aimed at the Pharisees. And on several occasions, he actually visits Jerusalem 
where he proclaim, proclaims the truth about himself and enters into controversy with those who oppose his claim. And even at times when he may have traveled north again, his ultimate goal was Jerusalem. This also accords with the prominence of Jerusalem in the Gospel of Luke. And the period between Jesus' final departure from Galilee and his last week is usually spoken of as the later Judean Epirene ministry. It took place partly in Perea and partly in Judea. And Perea was east of the Jordan in Herod's jurisdiction. And Judea was west of Jordan, and that was under Pilate's jurisdiction. So when now we have the new direction in Jesus's ministry. He travels south through Samaria. And in verse 51, this is thought to be identical with Jesus's visit to Jerusalem at the Feast of Dedication that we see in John chapter 10, verse 22. Thus, the Purine and later Judean ministry covered a period of about four months. As just observed, there is now a major change in Jesus's orientation. He is heading to Jerusalem where he would die. At this significant turning point, Luke once again uses a word expressing fulfillment. God's plan is another step near fulfillment. The approaching goal is not only Christ's death and resurrection, but especially his ascension. Now that Jesus faces the cross, Luke mentions the exaltation that would follow his exodus. The time of Jesus's ascension into heaven was now drawing near. He knew this well. He also knew that the cross lay between, so he resolutely moved toward Jerusalem and all that awaited him there. And in verse 52, we see that Jesus sends messengers on ahead who are not told to preach, but simply to get things ready for him. A Samaritan village that lay on his route proved inhospitable to the Son of God. The people knew Jesus was going to Jerusalem, and that was enough reason to bar him as far as they were concerned. After all, there was intense hatred between the Samaritans and the Jews. And so in verses 53 and 54, the residents of the Samaritan village reciprocated the hostile attitude of the Jews. They were especially negative because they knew that Jesus was going to Jerusalem, which they refused to acknowledge as a valid center of worship. Their sectarian, bigoted spirit, their segregationist attitude, their racial pride made them unwilling to receive the Lord of glory. The history of the Samaritans is uncertain. Many hold that they were a mixed race since the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel. The king of Assyria deported the leaders of Israel, among them the religious teachers and replaced them with foreigners. From that time on, the inhabitants of the northern kingdom received no further prophetic instruction, nor did they recognize God's revelation to the southern kingdom. The Samaritans were a fringe segment 
of the Jewish world for which Jesus and Luke had a concern. Now, James and John may have thought that Jesus would respond as Elijah had. James and John were so angered by this discourtesy that they offered to call fire down from heaven to destroy the offenders. The rejection of Jesus, uh, but the Samaritans infuriated James and John, who then and there gave an exhib exhibition of why Jesus had nicknamed them the Sons of Thunder. And in verses 55 to 56, Jesus strongly disapproved the suggestion of James and John by rebuking them. If the Samaritans were consciously rejecting Christ by rejecting his disciples, one would have expected that Jesus' instruction in chapter 9, verse 5 would apply, a mild reaction compared to that of James and John. But Jesus' messengers were rejected merely because they were Jews going to Jerusalem. And Jesus had not come to destroy men's lives. He came to save them. This was the acceptable year of the Lord, and not the day of vengeance of our God. They should have been characterized by grace, not by vindictiveness. And Jesus, without resentment, changed his route on his way towards Jerusalem. And so this is going to bring us up to another section here, the cost of following Jesus. This is the second major treatment of discipleship in Luke verse 23. The structure of this passage is noteworthy. The familiar rule of three is employed by Luke in recording three conversations. There is an interchange of order because in the first conversation, the inquirer initiates the conversation and Jesus states the objection. In the second order, this is reversed. And in the third, the man both initiates the dialogue and raises the objection with Jesus adding a comment. And each dialogue contains some theological language. We have the Son of Man that we'll see in verse 58. In verse 60, we'll have proclaimed the kingdom of God, and we'll have service in the kingdom of God in verse 62. Discipleship is not simply following Jesus in one's lifestyle, but it is involvement in the important work of the kingdom. So let's take a look at the hindrances to discipleship with verse, beginning with verse 57. Using the terminology of discipleship, follow, the first man amplifies it with a sweeping promise. And Jesus Jesus's reply is in accord with his prior definition of discipleship in verse 23 and constitutes a comment on the man's wherever you go. Since most people do have homes, the Son of God, the Son of Man, must refer specifically to Jesus. The idea of the rejection, if not his actual suffering of the Son of Man, is implied in Jesus' words. In these verses, we meet three would-be disciples who illustrate three of the main hindrances to wholehearted discipleship. With verse 58, we have the first man 
who was quite sure he wanted to follow Jesus anywhere and everywhere. He did not wait to be called, but impetuously offered himself. He was self-centered. He was unduly eager and unmindful of the cost. He did not know the meaning of what he said. At first, the answer of Jesus does not seem to be related to the man's offer. Actually, however, there was a very close connection. Jesus was saying, in effect, do you know what it really means to follow me? It means the forsaking of the comforts and conveniences of life. I do not have a home to call my own. This earth affords no rest to Jesus. Foxes and birds have more in the way of natural comfort and security than Jesus. Are you willing to follow me, even if it means forsaking those things which most men consider to be their inalienable rights? When we read the Son of God has nowhere to lay his head, we are apt to pity him. But he does not need our pity. In fact, pity yourself rather if you have a home that holds you back when Christ wants you out upon the high places of the world. We hear no more of the man and can only assume that he was unwilling to give up these common comforts of life to follow the Son of God. And in verse 59, we have the second man. The second man heard Christ's call to follow him. He was willing in a way, but there was something he wanted to do first. He wanted to go and bury his father. And notice what he said, Lord, let me first go. In other words, Lord, me first. He called Jesus by the name of Lord, but actually he puts his own desires and interests first. The words Lord and me first are totally opposed to each other. We must choose one or the other. And whether the father was already dead or whether the son planned to wait at home until he died, the issue was the same. He was allowing something else to take precedence over Christ's call. Now, it's perfectly legitimate and proper to show respect for a dead or a dying father, but when anyone or anything is allowed to rival Christ, it becomes positively sinful. This man had, done, had something else to do. We might say a job or an occupation, and this lured him away from a pathway of unreserved discipleship, since it was a religious, social, and family obligation to provide a decent funeral for one's father. Jesus's refusal to permit this is a striking example of the radical transfer of loyalty he demanded. And in verse 60, the Lord rebuked his double-mindedness with the words, let the dead bury the dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. The spiritually dead can bury the physically dead, but they can't preach the gospel. Disciples should not give priority to tasks that the unsaved can do just as well as Christians. The believer should make sure that he is indispensable as far as the main thrust of his life is concerned. His principal occupation should be to advance the cause of Christ on earth. 
The dead who are to perform the burial are usually thought to be the spiritually dead who do not follow Jesus but remain at home. And in verse 61, the third would-be disciple resembled the first in that he volunteered to follow Christ. He was like the second in that he uttered the contradiction, Lord, me first. He wanted first to say goodbye to his family. In itself, the request was reasonable and proper, but even the common civilities of life are wrong if they are placed ahead of prompt and complete and obedient service to God. Although saying goodbye is not all the emotional equivalent of a funeral, it still represents a family duty that must be forsaken for the service to Jesus. And so leading us into verse 62, Jesus told him that once he put his hand on the plow of discipleship, he must not look back. Otherwise, he was not fit for the kingdom of God. Christ's followers are not made of half-hearted stuff or of dreamy sentimentality. No considerations of family or friends, though lawful in themselves, must be allowed to turn them from utter and complete abandonment to God. The expression, not fit for the kingdom, does not refer to salvation but to service. It is not at all a question of entrance into the kingdom, but a service into the kingdom after entering. Our fitness for entering into the kingdom is in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. It becomes ours through faith in him. As some see here an allusion to the call of Elijah while plowing and his request to say goodbye to his family. It was important for ancient plowmen to concentrate on the furrow before him, guiding the light plow with his left hand while goading the oxen with the right. Looking away would result in a crooked furrow, a crooked row. And so we have three cardinal hindrances to discipleship that are illustrated in the experience of these men. The first one is material comforts. The second, a job or an occupation. And thirdly, family and friends. Christ must reign in the heart without rival. All other loves and all other loyalties must be secondary. And with that, we are about out of time. But next time, I want to close this section with some final thoughts and then we'll begin chapter 10. So until next time, God bless you and keep living Christian strong.